Good morning, Burning Bush Online. So what is faith? This morning we are starting a new series, Believing in God When Life Doesn't Work. You know, there are a lot of fake products in our world. And I believe in our society, one of the things that's fake with a lot of people is their faith. You know, you think about all the fake things. We're just overrun with fake products. Almost anywhere in the world now, you can get something real and then get a, a, a fake one for a much lower price. For instance, you can go to just about any airport in the world and purchase a fake Rolex, which would normally cost you about $15,000, and you can get one for $100. You can get up in the morning and you can put on fake nails and fake hair and fake eyelashes and you could have fake body parts, which we won't mention this morning, surgically enhanced on you. And then you can go to breakfast and you can put fake sugar into your fake coffee and then you can go to lunch and have a hamburger with fake meat. Then in the evening, you can put on your fake designer clothes with fake fur and fake leather. And then you can go out and talk with your fake friends on social media about the fake news with your fake identity. So there's all kinds of things that are faked. And then you know in a lot of areas of life, fake is okay. It's as good as the real thing. But it's not okay when it's your faith. Fake faith does not work. So what we're going to do is we are going to study a Bible character. He is found in 12 chapters in the book of Genesis. And this particular character is famously known for his faith. And the character I'm talking about is Abraham. And we're going to be looking at his life. And it's interesting that he is known above all other characters as a man of faith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're just going to go through these 12 chapters and kind of study his life. And it's interesting over in Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of the hall of fame for biblical characters, that Abraham is prominently mentioned for his faith. In fact, I want to share just a, a verse with you out of chapter 11 of Hebrews. It says, and notice several times, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And then it continues in verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents and did as Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And I want you to just kind of notice that several times the word faith is mentioned. And Abraham is known for his faith. And so we're going to be looking at him. And as, as we kind of get started, and we'll be doing this, you know, looking at Abraham over this, all, the entire summer... I want you to kind of know some kind of amazing facts about Abraham. First is this. He is revered by the followers of three world religions. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Secondly, 
He is the founder of the nation of Israel. Thirdly, he is mentioned 380 times in the Old and the New Testaments. Fourthly, he is a preeminent man of faith of the Bible. You might say he is the preeminent man of faith in the Bible. And then fifthly, he is the man whose life changed the course of world history. So who is Abraham? To kind of understand who Abraham is, we kind of have to go back to a period of time, a long, long time ago, in a land far, far away, so to speak. And we end up in a city called Ur. And that's where Abraham lived. And Ur was on the Euphrates River, which still exists today. It runs through Iraq and kind of empties out into the Persian Gulf near the, the, the country of Kuwait. And that city was a very prominent city in Abraham's day. It was known for its sciences and its math, and it was a, a considered a place of learning, and there was an ancient university there, and there was a, a library there. You guys are familiar with what libraries are, right? I know a lot of people, we've kind of forgotten about libraries. But it was kind of like Chicago or New York or London or Singapore would be today. Population about 250,000. Of course, population is much smaller than those big cities. But it was just a place, a bustling place, a huge city for its day. It was also a place of pagan worship. The moon goddess Nanna was the preeminent goddess idol that was worshipped during that time. And most likely, Abraham worshipped that moon goddess. What else do we know about Abraham as the story begins? Well, we know he was about 75 years old, which in that day and time was considered to be middle-aged. So 75 was the, the new 40, you might say. And uh, so that was Abraham. We know that he was married. He was married to his wife, Sarah. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to just use the words Abraham and Sarah during this entire series rather than going back and forth when his name is changed. But anyway, Abraham and Sarah, they had no children. They lived in this city. And the other important thing is Abraham was not looking for God. But here's an important point. Abraham's wife changed when God found him and spoke to him. I want you to listen to verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. It continues on. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, it would be an absolute understatement to call that passage a pivotal passage in Scripture. Everything from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21 ties in some way with the Abrahamic covenant, which is what we call these verses. For our purposes, I want to just kind of focus in on this one thought. God found Abraham while he was still an idolater living in a pagan culture. There is not even the slightest hint in our text 
that God was looking, that Abraham was looking for God. But God was looking for him. You know, sometimes people say, well, I found God. And I understand what they're saying. But really, we don't find God. Salvation starts with God. We, we don't find God. He finds us. It's not like humanity has formed some kind of salvation committee and petitioned God for help. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only begotten son for us. So Abraham wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. Now, just as I said a minute ago, it would be an understatement that Abraham would understand what this passage meant. I want you to just kind of think back to this passage for just a moment and listen to the things that God says he's going to do for him. He wants him to leave his country, leave his people, leave his father's household, and go to a land that God is going to show him. So here's what God asked Abraham. Think about this. He's in kind of in the prime of his life. And God says to him, here's what I want you to do. You got a good job. You got a nice nest egg built. You got a good home. I know you like it, Abraham. You've got family. You're in a community that respects you. You have good neighbors. But Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to, to leave. I want you to leave everything. Your friends, your family, your business, your security. Can you imagine how that dialogue might have went with Abraham and God? Abraham, this is God speaking. I want you to leave everything and go to this land that I'm going to show you. Where's that? If I told you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe me. Try me. Well, it's a land about 1,500 miles from here called Canaan, Abraham. Never heard of it. I know. And guess what else? Well, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. <laughs> That's kind of impossible, God. I, I don't have any children. Don't worry. Uh, God, what do you mean, don't worry? Just trust me. And Abraham's like, let me see if I get this right. You want me to leave everything, travel across the desert to some place I've never heard of, and become the father of a great nation? Right. Is this some kind of joke? No. Well, what am I supposed to tell my wife? That's your problem. <laughs> Hebrews 11, 8, as I mentioned to you earlier. Notice those, those verses again there about he obeyed, and he went. Go ahead and go up to the next verse, verse 9. Oh, here it is. He obeyed and he went. Even though he didn't know where he was going, he obeyed and he went. Folks, that's the way faith works a lot of times. God doesn't paint the whole picture for us. He just asks us to go. That's a central aspect of faith. You rarely see the big picture in advance. You have to give Abraham props here. You have to respect him for what he did. He obeyed and he went. And he didn't know what the future held. I wonder how often God asks us to do something, but we're not willing to step out because we just can't see the picture. That's where faith comes in. 
I tell you, I think a lot of times the problem is we don't even hear God because we're so busy and we're running so hard and so fast. It's like God has to shout to get our attention or he has to use a pandemic to get our attention. And it shouldn't be that way. God is telling us things and he's loud enough that if we would just slow down a little bit, get rid of some of that busyness, we could hear him. You know, Wednesday night, I was meeting with a group of men in our men's fraternity, and it was just fascinating to hear the men talk about what they've learned during this pandemic. And I'm kind of speaking for all of them, but I think it's because we were forced to slow down. Sometimes that's what it takes. Something just jolts us, and then we can hear God's voice and understand what he's asking us to do. So you get to the end of the first 10 verses in Genesis chapter 12. And, you know, Abraham, you you have to be impressed with him. He has just been, you know, this hero on balance so far. He's done exactly what God has asked him to do. He's left everything, sacrificed everything. And he's taken, folks, what are mighty large steps of faith. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine doing what he did. A man in his 70s just leaving it all to go to this promised land that God has promised him. In verses 7 and 8, we read that he he made altars. And so things are going really good for Abraham. I mean, I think Abraham at this point is probably thinking, life is pretty good. I mean, he wouldn't be making those altars if, if he didn't feel that way. Life is good. God is blessing me. But then when you get to chapter 10 and through the rest of the chapter, this this guy who has impressed us with his faith, all of a sudden life is not working out quite like he thought it was, and he makes a major blunder. I want you to remember this. This This is really important. Godly, smart people sometimes do some very stupid things. Even the most godly people you might know, some of the smartest spiritual people you might know, do some really stupid things. Here's the thing. When life doesn't work out the way we think it should, we have two choices. We can try and figure out what God is trying to teach us, or we can become a victim. Let me see if I can kind of explain that a little bit. A victim says, why did this happen to me? A learner says, what is God trying to teach me? A victim complains that he's being treated unfairly. A learner thanks God that he's not getting what he really deserves. A victim tries to get even with those who have hurt him. A learner tries to serve people in the midst of their difficulty. A victim believes that life is stacked against them. A learner believes that God is at work in the worst of situations. In every circumstance, we get to choose how we respond. We can either choose to figure out and be the learner what God is trying to teach us, or when life gets tough, we can play the victim card. Abraham is about to make a choice. Genesis 10, 12 tells us how that he reacts 
when there's a famine in the promised land and the choice that he makes. Which brings me to my first major point today. God doesn't use us. God doesn't use tough times to find out what we will do. He already knows that. He uses difficult times to reveal us to ourselves. And I'll kind of explain that in just a moment. So verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while. Because the famine was severe. Notice a couple facts about this. First, God sent the famine. God did that. You know, famines often occur in Bible times. And even today, that part of the world, there are famines. But it's the timing of this that's meant to catch our attention. That Abraham had just kind of been traveling and he just arrives, you know, at the promised land. And you would think maybe God's just going to kind of give him a little bit of a break here. But he doesn't. And isn't that true for most of us? Life is rarely that simple, that peaceful, and that quiet. And God wanted Abraham, secondly, to find out some things about himself. You know, sometimes I think we think that God sends tests our way to see how we will respond. And maybe sometimes he does. But I think a lot of times he already knows how we're going to respond. So he wants us to learn some things about ourselves, Some areas in our life that we will acknowledge that God needs to work there. And that's why those tests come along. So that we'll learn to be more dependent on him. You know, everyone kind of has a default response when, when life gets tough. I mean, there are just certain responses that we all kind of have. For Abraham, it was deceit and it was lying. That's what he did to save his own skin. So this famine comes and so he has an opportunity. He can make a choice. He can stay put, try to figure out what God is going to teach him. Or he can kind of take things in his own hands. And that's exactly what he does. And instead of staying put and having faith that God's got this famine under control, he books it for Egypt. Most likely because some caravan merchants have told him that you can go to Egypt and there's food there. So what do you do when life goes off the rails? Do you believe? Do you still trust in God? Or are you like Abraham and try to take matters into your own hands? Do you play the victim or the learner? Do you only trust and serve God when things are going well? I mean, is God still good when you lose your job, when you go bankrupt, when things aren't going well in your marriage, when your health fails? You realize that's the same question that Satan asked Job. I mean, Satan asked God. Does Job fear God for anything? It tells us in Job chapter 1 verse 9. And Satan is basically saying, well, God, of course. You have blessed this guy. Of course he's going to serve you when everything is going great. So what about you? Do you only serve God when, when things are going well? What's the answer to that question? What about when the pandemic hits? What about when the doctor comes in with the bad news? 
What about when the marriage falls apart, the finances fall apart, relationships fall apart? Then what do you do? A while back, I was visiting a man in the uh, pre-operating room. He was having some extremely serious heart surgery. And he had some other physical pre-existing conditions. And, and the doctors had told him, there's a good chance that you're not going to get off this operating table. But they also knew that if they didn't do the surgery, he wasn't going to live. And so we're just kind of talking before the, you know, they're getting ready to, to you know, give him some medicine to put him to sleep and that kind of thing. And he makes this statement to me. This is what he says. I'll come out ahead either way. I have been so blessed. If I make it through this surgery and I live, then it's a win. I'll spend more time with my family. If I pass away on the operating table, that's okay too, because I'll be in heaven with Jesus. And then he said, it's a win-win. I walked out of that pre-op room after hearing that godly man speak that and thought to myself, I was there to encourage him and I think I'm the one that walked away encouraged. You see, with that guy, it didn't matter what the circumstances were. God was good whether life was good or not. It didn't matter to him. That guy visited that day, his belief in God was complete no matter what else was going on. Second point this morning. God's people sometimes respond to tough times with clever deception. That's exactly what Abraham did. Verses 11 through 13. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now, I want to kind of give you a little warning this morning. It'd be kind of easy to kind of get morally superior to Abraham here and think to yourself, I would never do that. How could he possibly put his wife in jeopardy like that? Remember this. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to have a spectacular moral failure today. Most of the time when we respond to a crisis situation, we have great intentions. But then as the pressure kind of mounts, we we, we kind of forget about the vertical plane and what God wants to do, and we just start working on a horizontal plane. Hey, let me figure out what I can do here. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Now, there was some truth in what he was saying. Sarah was truly beautiful, scriptures tell us. Secondly, the Egyptians wouldn't think anything about killing a husband to add a beautiful woman to to the king's uh, harem. And thirdly, and this is where the story gets a little bit tricky, Sarah actually was his sister. They had the same father, but different mothers. So they were, you know, like stepchildren, so to speak. So Abraham could actually justify what he was saying by 
by the fact that, yeah, he told a half-truth. He could argue that. He told a half-truth. But folks, a half-truth is a whole lie. And Abraham is going to get in a lot of trouble for that. Obviously, he's scared. There's a story told of Farmer Joe who had been involved in an accident. And he had decided that his injuries from his accident were serious enough to take the trucking company to court. So they're in court, and the truck company's expensive lawyer questioned Farmer Joe, and he said, didn't you say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine, asked the lawyer. Farmer Joe responded, well, I'll tell you what happened. I had just loaded my favorite mule, Betsy, into the... And the lawyer interrupted him. I didn't ask for details. Just answer the question. Didn't you say at the accident scene that you were fine? Well, I had just gotten Betsy loaded into the trailer and I was driving down the road and the lawyer interrupted him again. He says, Judge, Your Honor, I'm trying to establish the fact that this man told the police officer at the scene of the accident that he was fine. And now weeks afterwards, he's trying to sue my client... And I believe he is a fraud. Would you please tell him to only answer my question? Well, by this time, the judge was kind of interested in in Farmer Joe's story. And he said, well, I want to hear about Betsy. And Joe thanked the judge and proceeded. Well, as I was saying, I had just loaded Betsy in the trailer. And this huge semi-truck was coming down the road and ran the stop sign and smacked right into the side. And I was thrown in one ditch and and poor old Betsy was thrown in the other ditch. And I was hurting really bad and I didn't want to move. And and I could hear Betsy kind of moaning and groaning on on the other side. And then a police officer came on the scene And hearing Betsy's moaning, he looked at her, he took out his gun, and he shot her right between the eyes. Then the policeman came across the road with his gun in his hand, and he looked at me and said, Your mule was in such bad shape, I had to shoot her. How are you feeling? You know, we can kind of laugh about that. But fear is no laughing matter. I think we can all kind of understand where Abraham's coming from, right? He's an average guy in the world, and things are tough, and he looks at his assets, and he looks at his liabilities, and he makes a conscious decision to tell just a little lie to save his skin. And of course, that's the whole problem. Rather than waiting to see what God wants, he takes matters into his own hands for a second time, the first time when he left, and now this second time. You know, the first part of the chapter, we were just so impressed with Abraham's faith. But now he's trying to figure everything out on his own. And I'm sure to Abraham, like a lot of times when we're in trouble, little white, lie, little white lies seem okay, and I'm sure Abraham thought the same thing. Perhaps it didn't seem that wrong to him. And by the way, how do you think Sarah felt? I mean, her husband who 
is sworn to protect her and to love her, has basically, you know, sent her, to allowed her to become part of Pharaoh's harem. I mean, how do you think she felt? He is willing to sacrifice his, his wife's purity to save his own neck. What Abraham did wasn't right. You know, underneath is a, a fundamental problem. He didn't want to trust God when life was not working out like he thought it should. Which brings me to the third point. Sometimes God allows our plans to give us a temporary advantage. I mean, at first, to, to, to all of us and to Abraham, it looks like he's going to, you know, the white lie is okay. Listen to these verses, verses 14 through 16. It says, When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham very well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So at first, it looks like he's being blessed. I mean, if you were to summarize these verses, you would say, if you're Abraham, so far, so good. Everything seems to be working out exactly as he planned. I mean, the Egyptians had a great eye for beautiful things, and they had taken Sarah, and, you know, I'm sure probably that bothered him on some level. It had to bother him in his conscience, but... Uh, you know, luckily for him, the Egyptians kind of had something in place that a custom that before a woman could be a could could become the bride of Pharaoh, that there would be a waiting period to make sure that she wasn't pregnant. And so, fortunately for Abraham, that was kind of in place. And at the same time, he's receiving this very large dowry from from Pharaoh. So it seems initially that. He's getting away with this sin, doesn't he? And this is important. Sin is fun for a season. If sin wasn't fun for a little while, nobody would ever sin. Every alcoholic knows what I'm talking about. You drink because it numbs the pain. You drink because it relieves the stress. You drink because it makes you happy for a while. Or how about the story of the prodigal son in the book of Luke? As long as he's got money, he's got friends, he's got women. The guys want to hang out with him. The women flock to him. But when the money runs out, the friends leave, the women leave. You see, sin only works if there's no tomorrow. But there's always a tomorrow. Sin will bring short-term rewards but it's not going to be without its consequences. Fourthly, God's children bring shame on themselves and Him by their disobedience. Notice the rest of our chapter. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister 
so that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So if Abraham wasn't going to protect his wife, then who was? God. God protected Sarah. The Bible tells us that that these serious diseases came upon Pharaoh. And not just Pharaoh, but his entire household. And literally, it translates into plagues or infestations came upon them. And that word literally means painful physical ailments came upon Pharaoh. Now, back then... You know, the, the common thing was everybody lived by superstition. So if you're, you're sick or something, then it's because one of the gods is mad at you. And so they would use oil and herbs and sometimes surgeries and, of course, lots of sacrifices to appease the gods. And at some point, Pharaoh figured out it's Sarah's God because Sarah's not getting sick. We've offended Sarah's God. And also at some point, he must have discovered that she was already married. And so now he is furious. He is outraged. And isn't it interesting that God uses a heathen to chasten a man of God? Pharaoh literally humiliates Abraham. Several times he says, why? Why'd you do this? Abraham has no answers. There are no answers. I mean, he lied to save his own skin. He was afraid to trust God in a moment of crisis. I wonder what kind of opinion Pharaoh had of Abraham's God after Abraham's shenanigans. I'm thinking not much. I wonder how many people refuse to embrace Jesus because of what they've seen in our lives. And they're like, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want any part of that. They see the failures and the inconsistencies. Verse 20 tells us that Abraham goes back to, to the promised land and he did get to keep the livestock and stuff. And so it kind of brings up one more question as they're headed back to the promised land. I wonder what Sarah said to Abraham when she came back to him. I'm sure most of you ladies probably could answer that question. Nothing. It was probably a long, quiet journey back through that desert, back to Canaan. She probably let him suffer in silence, and her silence said volumes. So what are some practical lessons for us this morning from Abraham. Number one, all of us, everyone faces famines. I mean, it, it, it happens sooner or later. If you haven't had one, it, it's going to happen. And sometimes you have those famines that knock your feet out from under you and you find yourself lying flat on your back. A doctor's report with the worst possible news, a divorce, a death of a loved one, unemployment, bankruptcy, a pandemic. And those crises of faith challenge you to answer the question, 
What do I really believe about God? Secondly, every escape contains a lie. When we try to escape a crisis without depending on God, we are telling a lie. When we think I can, I can solve this with my own ingenuity and my own guts, we're lying to ourselves. And sometimes we get in the habit of lying so much that we don't even think of our rationalizations as lies. Third one, every Abraham struggles with weakness. It doesn't matter how godly you are, how righteous you might be, we all have our imperfections. And when the tough times come, we have to decide, are we going to be a learner or are we going to be a victim? Number four, every compromise jeopardizes a Sarah. When we try to figure things out on our own, somebody's going to get hurt. And a lot of times, it's the people we care the most about. There's no such thing, hear me out, there is no such thing as a victimless sin. Number five, every Egypt has a Pharaoh. We live in a world where people aren't believers. We live in a world where, where people have different value systems. They live in worlds where it's gods of wealth and possessions and how much stuff you can get and power and status and self and Justice seems to be added to that list these days. And on the list goes. They hear us talking about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And their curiosity may prompt them to see how our life is different from theirs. But I wonder if what they see sometimes causes them to turn away. Because no one respects a hypocrite and no one admires a phony. The last one is this. God rarely gives us a big picture in advance. That is a truth. When God calls you, a lot of times you don't even know what the big picture is. You don't know what he's got in store for you. And then you just have to move in the right direction and leave the rest up to you. Got a little homework assignment for you. There is a discussion guide found on our, our, our Facebook page and it can be done in groups or it can be done as an individual. The last question on that list has to do with this list. Which of those six things, and if you forget what these are, you can, you can go to the Facebook page and look it up. Which of these six things have you recently encountered in your faith journey? I want you and God to just talk about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and fathers, we read about Abraham, we, we, we understand faith, but we also see grace. Because Father, when it was all said and done, you extended grace to him and let him go back to the promised land. And Father, we thank you for grace and mercy too. We thank you for loving us unconditionally. Father, we thank you that that even when we don't understand what's going on and, and when life isn't working the way that we want to, you're still there. And Father, I know there are all kinds of circumstances and all kinds of things going on in people's lives and we all have to make decisions. 
Am I going to be a learner? Or am I going to play the victim card? And Father, we know that you're ready. And when we don't understand why life has taken a turn that we didn't expect, that, that you're in control. And Father, I pray that you encourage folks here online this morning. Folks that are in the building today, that to just encourage them. Whatever the circumstances, however tough things are looking, Father, that you're there and you know what's going on. And our job is to believe, to trust. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.